people are showing up for queer and trans solidarity and joy. So people are going to keep coming regardless. And what better way for them to come when they feel safe and supported? Content warnings for this episode include ableism and eugenics. Jennifer would like to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples and unceded lands that the producers, hosts, and guests live and have dwelt upon. Today we honor the Coast Salish, Mohawk, Algonquin, and Anishinaabawaki, Cayuga within the Haudenosaunee territory. We honor the elders, the human, plant, and animal ancestors of these lands and celebrate the living descendants of these peoples. May all beings tend these lands for the goodness of the next seven generations and beyond. Yeti folks, welcome to Genderful, a talk show interviewing gender diverse people about their special interests. Hi, I'm Gender Master, and my pronouns are they, them. Hi, I'm Miranda Katita, and my pronouns are she, her. The focus of our show is to interview trans, non-binary, agender, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people regarding their special interests, passion projects, and resources for the gender-diverse community. We want our audience to know that we hold multiple diverse identities and bring these lenses to the show with our passion for telling our stories. I identify as non-binary, transmasculine, polyamorous, ADHD, autistic, and disabled, chronic pain, and mobility issues. I also am white and reside in the United States. I identify as trans-feminine, neurodivergent, queer, and a person of color residing in Canada. We invite you to remember that we are whole people with robust lives, friendships, challenges, and successes. We love and are loved, and we are delighted to share these stories with you. As always, we kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of their identities. Your identities can change over time and are valid every step of the way. And if you think you're gender diverse, you are gender diverse. There's no social or medical prerequisite to be included in the community. Welcome to Genderful Podcast, a show interviewing gender diverse people about their special interests. This week, our guest Sona, he uses he, they, z, and zir pronouns, is chatting with us about disability rights in trans and queer choir spaces. Sona is also a choir director for Transpose, the Ithaca Queer Singers Alliance, and we're very excited to chat with them. Welcome mm-hmm. to Genderful, Sona. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, do I remember, did you, did you or someone from one of your choirs reach out to us after another trans choir episode on this podcast? Yes, with D.B. Herner. It was that episode. And... Uh, yeah, my friend uh, from the choir reached out to y'all and was like, I have somebody who would really love to be on this podcast about Aww. disability, justice, and choirs. Um, so yeah, we've all, everyone in the choir is super excited about it too. And like, yeah. Oh, right. that's lovely. Yeah, that, uh, give that pod any, was, like... that was a very fun pod. Stevie <laughs> was, was such a great guest to have on the show. <laughs> Totally. Um, if you all haven't, listeners, if you haven't heard uh, Stevie Herner's interview, please feel free to also go check that out. I have no idea what episode number it was. Yeah, but you should just you should just listen to every months. single episode just to be sure. <laughs> you'll you'll find it on the way. Yes, you just if you just binge listen to every single episode, um, you'll get there. <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. Um, Sona is just at the very top. Is there anyone you want to shout out from your choir? So then they get to hear their name in the pod. Oh, well, I'll shout out Jonah Hurst, who is the co-director with Hi, me. Jonah. And uh, yeah. Hello. And uh also uh Chase, who's the person that sent 
the e- email to y'all and was listening. Hi, Jay. And, yeah. Yay. Wonderful. <laughs> well, hello to the whole choir. Um, I, it, you may have already heard this if you heard the Stevie episode, but I was in choir for nine years and I love choir. It's so fun and good. Yay. Yes, yeah. I I did hear about that. I I have a question. Um, like, oh, this is our podcast. We ask the questions. I'm okay, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Go no, Miranda is uh, being silly. Go ahead. You go. <laughs> it's okay. That's being awesome, spicy. Uh, uh, but yeah, like, what's your, what was like your best choir experience? Like, how old were you? What was the context? Oh my gosh. I love this. And I think all three of us should answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm happy okay. to, I'm happy to go first so that everyone else can think about their answers. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite memory from choir. Um, so in high school, my senior year, um, I was still girl mode when I was in high school. Um, mm-hmm. There were no, no seniors who were men that were in choir or young men or guys or whatever. And so instead of bringing like sophomores and juniors into the like senior chorus um for that year only we had a very special choir and also for that year only we had a very special choir teacher so shout out to uh mrs warner who is our our choir teacher that year um because our regular teacher had gone to get uh, her master's degree so that she could get paid more for doing her job um, and so in the meantime, we had a, a person for the one year where our teacher was away doing that. Um, and so we actually formed what was called the treble ensemble. And it was a 13 person, all women's jazz chorus. So instead of jazz choir, it was like, you know, eight, eight people, two per section, you know, two, two genders. It was, it was the early two thousands. I'm sure it would be totally different now, but back then it was very like, you know, you have eight people and two bass, two two tenor, two alto, two soprano. Um, and my favorite memory from being in that chorus was one one winter day. It was cold, and where I live at the t- lived at the time, it didn't snow very often. It would maybe snow for like one to three days of the year, and so it was probably spring semester, really early on. Um, and the chorus was a full year long class. Um, and so we all ran out into the atrium. So it was technically outside, but the like harmonics are really good. And we sang the song silver bells acapella in like a, a circle facing inwards at each other. So often choir is outward facing towards an audience, but it was, it was for us. It was just us for us in this circle. We were huddled for warmth and we sang silver bells together. Um, while the snow was falling like uh-huh. nearby not quite on us because the atrium kept the snow off our heads but you could see it falling in the distance on the field and stuff and it was just so beautiful and we were in um perfect relative pitch someone may have brought out a pitchfork or something so that we could or a tuning fork so we could know what our note was and it was just so like beautiful and intimate and it's just like this perfect high school memory of like singing and and being excellent together like just we were all at the top of our singing game right then. And um, yeah. it was just really nice. So that's my memory. Oh, that is so wonderful. So sweet. Brenda, what's your memory? Well, I was, I mean, so I never did choir. Um, despite the fact that I, I really love singing. 
Uh, so mm-hmm. like I've, I, you know, I've been like, it's, it's been a long time since I've done like any sort of like serious uh, music stuff, but like I grew up, you know, playing in various instruments. So, you know, I grew up uh, playing the violin and, you know, in, you know, junior high, like the, you know, band class or whatever, like they would always just stick, stick me with whatever instrument nobody else wanted to play. So I played a lot of different instruments. So I played, <laughs> I played the French horn, I played the trumpet, I played the flutes. Um, and then later on, on my own, I, I learned uh, a little bit of keyboard and I learned guitar as well. I don't remember how to do any of those things anymore, <laughs> but I still sing. Uh, so it's, I, you know, I've never, I've never been in a band, you know, like I've never like cultivated this, this skill, but it's something I've always really, really enjoyed doing. And, uh, if you tune into any of my charity streams, I do quite a lot of singing on those. So I have been known to get standing ovations at karaoke bars. <laughs> so that, that's, that's kind of the extent of, um, of my, uh, of my, like my singing. So, uh, but it's, yeah, like I said, it's something I, I, I very much enjoy. And uh, if you watch some of the VODs from these charity streams, you'll get a chance to see uh, me really go for it sometimes. So, <laughs> and so uh, the video I'm working on, I am actually, I, so I don't know YouTube, the YouTube content ID system will pick this up or not, but there is a very specific song that I, I want to include for my end credits that's, I cannot afford to license, but I'm, I'm going to do an acapella cover of it and hopefully it slips under the, the copyright system. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's so good. Um, well, yeah, uh, you're, as I was saying earlier, you definitely are like prime transpose, uh, interest material, even though you, um, claim to not have choir experience. Um, I mean, I don't have choir experience. I do have singing experience, but yes, just not, yes. just not in, not just not in a formal setting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my favorite uh, memory. I have like so many to pick from, but I think like uh, specifically my choir director in high school, and similar, like also a high school experience, um, would take us out into the hallway in our school where there's like really high ceilings and nice harmonics and acoustics and we would sing like uh really like I don't like juicy choral music like the kind that was like like Eric Whitaker but not by him but we did also sing Eric Whitaker um because it was during that time when my all choir directors were obsessed with Eric Whitaker um but yeah like just singing in the hallway like for fun and knowing that everyone else in my school was like upset that we were singing in the hallway and we were all so happy to be singing in the hallway uh I have like so many videos um in my like library of photos and videos from high school of just like that phenomenon um like just of nothing and just of like the us singing in the hallway that's definitely like my favorite um memory and like something that like a feeling I try to recreate constantly in choir spaces that I'm directing just like we're here to have fun and like I don't we don't care what other people think about it um yeah yeah that's wonderful that's so much that's so lovely (laughs) I love that like you put you put a heart in in the zoom chat and no one on twitch can see it (laughs) okay it was persona it wasn't oh. <laughs> but i want everyone to know it was there <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
so we have a couple questions. Choir. Yeah, <laughs> we do have a couple of like questions that we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, the first one being is, what might be the things you can trace back to your youth that indicated you might be gender diverse one day? Okay. Um, what I could think of was my unwillingness to wear a shirt as I got closer to the age of 10 and like having my friends be like, that's kind of weird. And me being like, why though? So, <laughs> uh, and you know, that also probably was pointing to some sensory issues I was experiencing that were also going unrecognized, but that's, you know, a whole other thing. But, uh, and then also my want to wear princess dresses everywhere was just me wanting to be in drag all the time. Oh. Uh, and like wear my gender as a performance instead of like actually having to be a girl um that was definitely another thing yeah those are the, yeah that's very relatable <laughs> <laughs> um so sona you you have transformed into this beautiful being that you are today um what would you say your relationship to gender has been like and evolved over time well i didn't I didn't have any like inkling that I was trans until the pandemic hit. Um, but I did like want to be perceived. I was like obsessed with being perceived as a lesbian because I needed to disconnect from my gender as a part of my identity. And that was the way that I did it. And I like didn't question that at all. Um, and I think when I was first starting to like question my gender, I like was really worried about like having a label to describe it and like uh needing all the answers right away and and I I very quickly learned that that really doesn't matter but now I like really happily will stack any labels onto my gender and like don't care at all how other people feel about it um because it makes me feel more at home in my own body um and like that is something that I like learned over time of like learning more about my gender identity and also just like the more I like let go of the labels the more clear it was like what I wanted to be and like mm -hmm. and what who I am actually um to myself so yeah I mean labels can definitely be useful I mean they're a useful tool so the the danger is when people use labels to be uh prescriptive rather than descriptive it's mm -hmm. like oh well you are this therefore you have to behave like this or you have to dress like this uh it's like no it's just I'm using this label because it fits with you know what what I want to be so right yeah. so yeah um, and yeah I I really like that you brought that up because I think I I also it's like that the, the layer that I have of autism where it's like the, the, there are expectations for each gender like social expectations that I have mm. to fulfill and like that's really overwhelming for me and then as soon as I was mm. like oh I don't that actually doesn't matter to me at all and then I was like oh goodbye <laughs> into yeah, yeah. I go <laughs> absolutely and there's you know there's there's a big intersection between uh, autistic folks and gender diverse folks <laughs> yes. uh, I'm sure a lot of people can can re relate to that experience I mean uh, I certainly can I mean for a while like gender was kind of a, a performance that's that you use to kind of blend in with the normies right so mm -hmm. uh, and then you eventually reach a point in your life where you're just like I I don't I just want to I just want to be me I don't care <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Uh, so why don't we, uh, why don't we segue into our special topic for today? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Transpose, the Ithaca Queer Singers Alliance? Yeah. Um, okay. So Transpose was originally founded as the Ithaca Gay Men's Chorus back in 2009 by Baruch Whitehead. Um, and for a span of around 10 years, um, the membership was fluctuating from like smaller single digits to um, around 20 members. Um, the choir was never explicitly just for gay men, despite the name, and anyone was welcome to join, but it was not explicit for prospective members that the space was not welcome, or was, that the space was not only welcome to trans folks, but actually there were a lot of trans folks in the space already, and it was a very like centering space for um, gender expansive people. Um, around 2019, right before the pandemic hit, some conversations began floating around the membership about changing the name um, in order to reflect the people in the room uh, who didn't identify as such. Um, but it was decided at the time to keep the Gay Men's Chorus title as it resonated with the people in the room, um, even if they weren't identifying as a, as a gay man at the time. Uh, a little while after the group came back from the pandemic, which was in the fall of 2022, uh, which is when I joined the group, um, there was a continued shift in membership uh, that led to an SATB choral space, which um, contrasted from the previous ETBB choral space. Um, for those who don't know what those words mean, it's um, all the ranges of voices or just the lower range of voices. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so, uh, after this, uh, uh, oh, so yeah, when the membership was shifting more, there was, uh, a need arose that, um, we needed to reflect the community present in the room and to the rest of the greater Ithaca community. Um, and this began our journey of holding community conversations, um, as we rethought what our group was about and resulted in the writing of our mission statement, which you can find on our website, uh, aci.org. Uh, and um, we wrote that as a community during this community conversation. Um, and this was the first time in the history of the group that we had like a structured community conversation process because we had a lot more members now. We had like probably around like 25 to 30 members um, at this time with like 15 to 20 folks coming to, like regularly to community conversations. Uh, and that led to the choosing of our new name in hopes of helping the queer and trans folk in the greater Ithaca community see that our space was made for them and for their allies. Um, so yeah, and now uh, I was appointed the interim co-music director in the in the fall of 2023 and I'm still in that position with Jonah Hurst and it's so awesome. I love it. Uh, now how would you say uh, is your chorus's leadership different from other community choruses? So uh, there's there's a lot of differences um, and this is something that I uh, have a special interest in so I'm gonna say a lot of words. Oh, go for <laughs> it. Like, we we literally brought you here for you to info dump about your special interests. So. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I I literally we are excited in my, for the info dump. Yes. I wrote I wrote in my notes 
heads up, the answers to all these questions are going to be info dumps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go so for it. We'd much I'm rather ready. you say too much than too little. So. <laughs> okay. So uh, the first thing I'll start with is that the leadership does not require anything of members other than to show up to the extent that they feel able, willing, and welcome. Uh, and of course, wear a mask and test for COVID beforehand. And that's it. Um, and then the other things are uh, the co-directors are paid equally and we share tasks equitably. So usually in a choir, in whatever setting you're in, if there's two people in the in charge of conducting the choir, there's usually a director and an assistant director or like an associate director. But we just have two directors and we have different experiences in music and different strengths and weaknesses. And we sort of like lean on each other for like what we both need. And it works really, really well. And um, we both are happy to be paid uh, equally amounts um, regardless of like the labor being split equally. Um, and it's a great time uh, for the leadership. It's a great time. And uh, it also gives the members more people to like go to and trust and also not have like this like hierarchy situation that often happens in choruses as, as president. Um, in related to that hierarchy vibe, we, we function from a bottom-up approach in terms of serving the community. So um, the leadership is there to receive and channel the desires and needs of the people in the room. And then we have a steering committee, which in most choruses is called a board. Um, and the steering committee is responsible for organizing the desires and needs of the community into something like a concert or a uh, a social event or like brainstorming ideas to like get us more gigs or like you know just doing all the logistical things that um go into running an artistic group that performs and you know has money thrown at them in various ways and stuff like that okay there's more uh we have a music selection committee which uh i'm contractually required to have um and this is basically a committee of people that is made up of uh, whoever in the membership wants to join. It's totally like up to the people who, who wants to join and there's no cap of how many people can be on it. Um, and the music selection committee based on who's present will decide the best way to sort through the music uh, that is requested by the membership and the music selection committee and the directors and um, filter in a way that feels true to what the group wants to be pursuing, uh, portraying to the audience. Um, and also just like what we wanna be singing and feeling good about uh, and um, finds different ways that, uh, finds, finds, oh, here, here we go. I lost my train of thought and now I'm back. Um, we also decide on like the themes of the concerts and like logistical stuff like that. But that's also like usually only left to the music directors that task. So it's like for me so helpful to have that as a team of people, especially as somebody who's disabled. And like I literally gave up being a choir director in a school because I knew that my disability would like make like it's just like totally inaccessible for me to be a choir director in a school because of the amount of labor it takes. And um, yeah. it's like, 
so special that I get to be in this position and do what I love and like have accommodations like that, which for me, like having a music selection committee is an accommodation. And it still like leaves me spoons to like get excited about new pieces of music that I want to bring to the group and like, just like, yeah, just like be who I want to be. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's the music selection committee. Um, and oh, this is okay. So I mentioned the community conversations, which are like, also something that like choirs like to think that they do, but they actually don't do. Because the most thing that I've experienced in professional choir spaces, which actually I only experienced in collegiate, college, college, collegiate choral spaces, um, which is like having a conversation about like the material that we're performing or like a reflection on the concert or something. But we have like structured community conversations where we, at the beginning of the season, we'll like plan out what community conversations we wanna have, where we talk about things like how we can better center disability justice in our group, what kind of music we wanna be performing and why, um, like really investigating these questions that um, concern the community and like how we are presented to the public. Um, and we really give a chance for everybody to like have a voice and like are really sensitive to that um, in a way that other choruses are not because they'll just sort of like open up the floor to everyone but that's not really accessible for everybody to really feel like they can have their voice heard. Um, so we try to have as many avenues for people to like send in their thoughts and feelings um, as possible. And I think that's everything. Yeah, I mean, this choir sounds so dreamy. <laughs> well you can come anytime because there's also no attendance requirement or anything like that that is so lovely um i live very far away it would be a it would be several hundreds if not thousands of dollars to attend that is very true i wish yeah. that transpose had the funding to fly people out but maybe yeah. in a few years it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a bit closer for me so <laughs> i think transpose just needs a, a sibling chorus on the other coast yes. Oh my gosh, yes. that would Start be a new so chapter. good. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a, there is, but yeah, I mean, we have to like, I, we have to write all this stuff down and like present it to other courses, I feel like, because there are definitely other courses trying to do this kind of work, but it's still very much in the baby stages of getting across to like in the professional field. And yeah, yeah, that would be super cool. If, if I were, if I were trying to, figure out how to make what you're doing more replicable. I will share with you what I would do. You don't have to do it. And it may not be no, the right please. path, but I'll, I'll save my ideas. Um, cool. So in, at least in some professional spheres, there is something, I know it as white papers. And honestly, I don't know how I feel about that phrase. Um, but there are <laughs> professional writings that are considered to be like the top standard or the best, the best way to do a thing. Um, and so writing a, a document, what I would do if I were trying to do it is get together with the other choirs that are trying to do it, have some sort of committee consensus gathering thing, convention, even if you will, um, and, and codify, write down and codify exactly what those recommendations would be. And it may be that you all get together in a big in-person committee uh, to kick it off. And then over a year process, people are meeting weekly or monthly and taking notes and trying to work on different pieces of this documentation. And then releasing that documentation to the greater choral sphere in whatever method that is, if it's um, sort of a public letter or something, 
but some sort of mass dissemination of this packet of information. And I don't, I don't mean packet like it's a couple pages stapled together. I mean, like it is a parcel, it is a, a unit, um, however big or short that is. Um, but if, if all the procedures are really clear, all the processes, the values and how you, you actively live those values, right? So it's not just a bunch of ideals. It's actually, here's how you live the ideals from the, from the moment you think about starting a choir until you're performing and beyond, mm -hmm. you know, um, at every level, right? Not just the, the experience of the director, not just the experience of the person in the seat, but even the experience of the people in the audience, the people running the lights, the people, you know, the, the staff included with productions like this that maybe aren't most obvious immediately, you know, down to accessibility at these events, like wheelchair accessibility in your performance space or whatever. Um, yeah. And so then once all of that is written down, sending that out to all of the, all the choirs. And so perhaps you will find choirs that are already existing, upgrading their stuff and maybe new choirs starting and maybe creating um, an online community where peers can, like directors can communicate with each other and figure out best practices and kind of keep sharpening that. And then every five years or 10 years, releasing an updated draft of this thing with all the things you've learned since last time with all these conversations. And then it becomes this ongoing living document um, that documents how to do this. Um, that's how I would do it. It's a big, it's awesome. a lot of spoons. I'm not offering <laughs> to do it. I have other projects to work on, but if I were doing it, that is how I would try to go about it. Um, yeah. That to me seems like the, the way that is the most collaborative and open to change. Um, if you look at um, it's actually, some of these ideas are based on what I've seen they do with WPATH. If you know much about that, it's the World Professional Association of Transgender Healthcare. And it is the, the, the guidelines for trans healthcare worldwide and the standards of care is what the document is called, has been updated eight times since WPATH started. I don't know what decade that was, but I feel like they've been going for a long time, um, somewhere between 50 and 100 years, I would guess. I haven't looked it up. But um, but the standards of care have done things like told insurance companies, doctors, therapists, et cetera, um, the ways to support trans people in getting their surgeries and all that. And actually insurance companies base their, um, no, I'm info dumping. <laughs> um, insurance <laughs> companies base, base their uh, policies somewhat off of this standards of care, the, the WPATH comes up with so it's doctors talking to each other about best practices and WPATH thank you juice WPATH was founded in September 1979 by endocrinologist and sexologist Harry Benjamin with the goal of creating an international community of professionals specializing in trading gender variants and so when we have seen this is an info dumping podcast it totally is but, um, <laughs> so what so when we when we see that we go from like having to live your true gender out in the world for a year before you can start HRT to that's no longer a thing to you don't even have to be on HRT to have some or most trans affirming surgeries um, because they're just realizing all these layers like, oh yeah, like some people like physically can't take HRT for other complicated health reasons, but maybe they still want top surgery or some other kind of surgery um, to be more in their gender and their bodies. And so um, the, the ways that trans healthcare has become more accessible over the last 50 plus years is because of WPATH in part, if not in all. But um, so that that type of thing that has that longevity 
can continue to sort of push the envelope instead of having these beautiful little communities pop up and then fizzle out. And then, you know, 10 years later, someone else thinks of it, you know, across the globe and they do it over here for five years and then they fizzle out. And then it's not, there's not like the passing of the torch and the carrying of the collective community wisdom. And so creating, creating, or maybe there's already some sort of big, there's gotta be some sort of super choir, everybody talking to each other place. You just have to like create a committee that's part of that. Yeah. And, you know, publish these, this documentation anyway. Right, right, right. I got it. <laughs> that was really good. Um, thank you. Anyways, good luck. I hope Thanks. you figure it out. It'll be yeah, so cool. I mean, maybe I'll just write my PhD about this. Who knows? Yes. It's either it's either idea. that either that or studying trans mass voices on T. That's that's those are the options. They're both really good. Yeah. 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 Well, and if you can get co-signers. Like if you could get Stevie Herner to co-sign on documentation like that and other sort of big name, like intersectional justice trans choir directors or just disabled choir directors, like I think it could be really powerful. Yeah, that would be really cool. Thanks for the inspo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So speaking of intersectional justice, does transpose still require masks? Yes, it does. And also it requires a rapid test before rehearsal. And both you of tell these us are about... provided. Oh. No, you go ahead. Just tell us. I more. was just saying uh, both of both of those things are provided for our membership who are cannot access that for whatever reason and we don't ask questions about that either. Um we just got them around. And if if people are using a test provided by us, we just ask that they um get there at 6.45 or understand that they can't come in until the test is done. So they have time, the 15 minutes to pass. I love that. Um, how did you come to this community agreement and how is the agreement maintained? I have seen masking become a really crunchy subject in spaces and um, yeah. I'd love to know if it's been crunchy or if it's been just like, this is the expectation going in from the beginning and everyone is just on board. I don't know. I would love to hear. Yeah, more. it has been a little crunchy, uh, but so um, the agreement was made during 2020 before I joined. So I don't know the crunchiness from then. I know that it was crunchy and that's all I know. Um, uh-huh. And it was clear at the time that singing was a high risk activity. Um, so there was just a lot of initiative, I think, from people like wanting to follow CDC guidelines when like initially the pandemic hit. Um, so anytime later on the question came up again, which it did, um, the answer uh was based on the prioritization of immunocompromised and disabled folks in the room who were vulnerable and based on the fact that it was not or did not feel worth it to the people who don't fit into those boxes um, to lose those important members of our community. Um, Before our recent change in leadership, our previous director did begin to push a bit for performing unmasked in outdoor spaces um, which was quickly shut down because of the fact that, like, I believe this to be very true. It was only shut down because of the fact we have um, immunocompromised and disabled folks in our leadership team, um, mm. including myself. Uh, and 
if those people hadn't been present, I'm sure that that push to do that would not have been like vetoed at all. Um, yeah, which would have been pretty sucky because that was around the same time where my circus school was getting rid of their mask policy. And that was rough because that was like also the only place because this is pretty recent, like this is like in like over like the fall or the summer of 2023. Uh, and so most places had not been requiring masks at this point. Um, yeah. And so circus was like the last place that I had besides transpose that was still requiring masks and was like something that I did for fun and to be around queer people because circus is a very queer activity. And um, it very much is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was very scary at the time for like that question to come up at transpose while I was also being let down by my circus school. Um, but luckily, uh, the community really, really showed up for us and um, the current maintenance of this agreement is quite simple. Um, we include a reminder on our weekly email for people to bring a mask and test before coming. And we provide masks and tests for those that don't have access to those um, or for new members or people who forgot. Um, and when a new member joins, we have not gotten pushback for these policies. And I do like to believe that it makes people feel held by the community, regardless of their masking practices in their personal life. Um, and I do think that people would resonate with that um, that are in the choir. Uh, we have had like audience members come up to us and be like, why are you masking? And then the answer is very simple. It's like, oh, we're masking to protect our, ourselves and our community and the audience. And uh, we also ask our audience to mask and we provide masks for them and that is another thing that I have not seen any other music um, performers doing except for maybe one circus performer who I know um, and it's very easy to keep these practices up and people like don't realize that um, like there are like places that are donating free masks all the time you just have to know where to look um, usually the health department in your local county or like uh, an independent living support center will usually have them or and they'll have free tests too um, and yeah it's it's really not that difficult to maintain at this point um, there's like an understanding within the community that that's the expectation and people are showing up for queer and trans solidarity and joy so people are going to keep coming regardless um, and what better way for them to come when they feel safe and supported wow having the audience mask too i mean that's delightful and i i wonder about like if if you have decent like compliance with masking if you like have strategies for if people bulk at it i'm guessing maybe that might be on all your advertisements for your shows like hey mask required like you're yep. the audience it's on our poster we have gotten pushback from cuz we're a part of a nonprofit organization uh we have gotten pushback from like the board of the nonprofit about the specific phrasing on our posters um mm. but uh we kind of got around it this time around uh i don't know how i maybe it's cuz we said they were provided on the poster um but uh yeah um I forgot what else I was gonna say but yeah yeah and I would imagine there's there's a bit of a self-selection there because you know as a queer choir you kind of 
attract an audience of queer folks and queer allies, right? And uh, I don't think this is a controversial statement, but I think queer folks and their allies are um, less reluctant to wear masks than, yeah. than not. So Yeah, I agree with that. And there are people yeah. that forget sometimes and like, like they'll walk in without a mask and then there's like a very normal practice to be like, hey, where's your mask? And like, that's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, um, of course. Because yeah, and like, like yeah, I was just gonna say, cause like personally, like I, in most public places, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't wear masks. It's like, I'm not immunocompromised. I'm I'm not, I don't spend time around people who are, uh, but if you ask me to wear a mask, I absolutely will. And if I go to like a crowded place, like for instance, like um, I was just on an airplane a few days ago and I wore a mask on a plane. I don't like it, but I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, I feel really, glad that I'm in a leadership position in Mm -hmm. this community and like I can provide that for people because I do have like I do have disabled friends who stopped masking in public spaces um purely for economic reasons um Mm. and yeah so um that 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 is like really hard to witness and see so it was I'm glad yeah, like, yeah, because it's one thing if it's like you're choosing to do that, and it's another thing if that choice is made for you because you can't afford it or or you don't have access to that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, because yeah, I'm I'm all for that, like you know, free masks for everybody. Like, let's go. Like, you know, COVID is still around, y'all. Like, it it's, it's not over. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, well, um, and I and I choose to mask everywhere um, because I. I'm disabled and I suspect that I'm immunocompromised. I don't, I don't know for sure, but I have some undiagnosed mystery things that plague me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Me too. (laughs) Um, And so I just like, yeah, I I don't want to take the chance. Like I, I already know how hard my life is with my level of ability that I have now. And the thought of becoming even more disabled, having long COVID, being unable to leave my bed for months or Mm -hmm. years because of long COVID, like, you know, yeah. my wife and I yeah. are already struggling enough with my disabilities as it is without adding that to the mix for yeah. either of us, to be honest. Like if she went down, it'd be like, well, I guess we're all quitting our jobs and yep. uh, going on fully state funded everything because what do? So yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like, and this is sort of like getting into the disability justice stuff, like, um, like I function in the mindset or in the framework of disability justice that like um, queer people are disabled merely just because of being queer in the mm-hmm. systems that we're in and um, you know like queer black folk and other queer people of color are gonna also be more disabled by the systems that our society functions within um, and so to, uh, to your point Meowster about like oh, like, I don't want to risk getting disabled more. Like, that's how I feel when I'm serving, like, the transposed community. It's not just for the immunocompromised people in the room. It's for, it's very, like, maintaining the living abilities of everybody in the room at the place they are currently at as much Mm -hmm. as I can. And, yeah, like, I don't want to be a leader in a space where that is not prioritized. Well, I think we are about halfway through and I want to make sure we leave time for our break before part two, where we're going to talk more about disability justice. Um, Chad is saying things like free everything down with capitalism and eat the rich. So there you go. 
<laughs> free tampons and pads for everyone. Yes. Oh, I, I, I did want to respond to that comment. So we have uh, free tampons at my work uh, in, in the women's rooms. Nice. Uh, so yeah, it's all, all government buildings now have, um, have free women's, uh, hygiene products. So in Canada for yes. those listening and don't know that yes. detail anyways. Yes. <laughs> I was so blown away when there was free COVID tests in Canada. Like you can just walk in a pharmacy and say, oh, I yeah, want some yeah. COVID tests and they will just give yeah. you some and they don't restrict the quantity. They're just like, help yourself. And I'm like, I could yeah. just take this and walk out with it. Mean, usually, so I'm gonna you, start the, driving to Canada then. Yeah, usually they just give you a you couple. But that. I remember, like when I was like when I was getting mine, like there was there was a guy yeah. ahead of me in line, and <laughs> and like had like a bunch of kids, and they're just like, here, just take a whole bu- bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, Miramis clarifying. They have bins of them available. Pluto is saying in any shopper's drug mart. Yes. Uh, yeah, they're yeah, like, you can just go to any pharmacy, like, any supermarket, they'll have them. The cheapest so place for me to get them in Ithaca is at Wegmans for eight dollars each. Yeah, that's so much. Like, take that budget, just gas money and like food for the trip. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe take some friends so you can go hit up a couple yeah. of them. But luckily, I do know pharmacy. the health department gets a shipment like not super reliably because like a few weeks ago there were none in all of Ithaca, but. When they do get a shipment, wow. they distribute it to the library and a few other places in town. And the the health department will restrict the amount that you can take, um, but mm-hmm. all the other places will not, even though it's all the same supplier. So you just have to know where to go. So I have one more related comment, and then we will take our break. Juice says, all the COVID tests I have are going to expire in February. Juice, I think it's the FDA website. Yeah, they have extended the expiration date on a lot of boxes of tests mm. you have to have the lot number to double check but i remember when i had checked this drawer in my house and my wife had trying to be helpful thrown out like 10 boxes of covid tests that i had stockpiled and i was like oh um because they the box said they were expired but if you had checked the website they actually weren't like they extended it oh. and part of that just has to do with how quickly covid tests were made and they didn't have enough time to you know, double check and whatever. So anyway, so if anyone didn't know that, um, that is a thing to keep in mind. Um, it sounds like in Juice's particular case, that's less helpful, but just in general, if people didn't know, um, they are extending the, the deadline on a lot of those. So double check before I throw them out. Um, so Sona, in what other ways does your lovely group center disability justice? Uh, yeah, so... Um, we have, uh, in addition to the music selection committee, we have a disability committee, um, which, uh, arose when we realized that the group wanted to center disability justice, um, and we couldn't all, we couldn't have a community conversation about that every week, so we made a committee for it, um, and this pretty much provides things like stands for those who request them for rehearsals and performances like to hold our music because for some reason oral musicians are the only musicians that have to hold our music with our bodies which is so inaccessible and I am in professional choirs that are not as accommodating and I just performed um yesterday in a performance of the Mozart Requiem where I had to hold my music the whole time and my chronic pain was like screaming but I literally had no choice um, so that is one thing that 
uh, the disability community does. Uh, and uh, also chairs um, and like make sure that this is something that I've sort of taken on as the director, but I like assume it as disability committee uh, responsibility because I'm also a part of that committee. Um, but like I make sure that the people that need to take sitting breaks during the performances have their spot in the front row of our risers so that I can put a chair there for them. Um, and they can choose to sit or stand. Um, and like, there's again, like no requirement for whether or not, like why you would need that. It's just like, if you ask for it, you get it. Um, what if another the whole thing choir asks for it? You just do one half, we'll have half one circle big, of chairs? One big half circle, yeah. Or mm -hmm. I would probably reach, like workshop a little bit. Uh, like it's, it's a lot of trial and error of like what would work and what wouldn't work, but that could happen. Chairs on plus size risers. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking just like, just set up a whole bunch of couches. <laughs> oh my God. Couches yeah. are so we hard to just have to like, we would the have posture to build. is terrible. We would Whatever. Have to you can make it work. just melted. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, Meowster does have a really good point. Um, that is you like a whole accessibility thing in singing too. You like to you're, the, you're not going to be able to sing like very well. You have to sit like this to sing. You have to sit on the edge of your chair with a straight back so your lungs have room to breathe for the long notes. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, if we were all on couches, we would also need like whole risers in the audience so that they could see us on the ground, which is usually the problem, which is why we sing with risers. So anyway, the other thing the disability committee is trying to do, which we haven't done yet, is like make a disability 101 document for the steering committee and like the newer members just to like have in their folders of like these are our like these are the things you should know about disability in this space because it is a space where we center disability justice and um just like a little info dump about it pretty much um and uh we also like wanna we have plans to um like educate our uh, steering committee specifically on and the larger community but uh, on on like various mm, other disabilities that we know for a fact are in our group um, and that need to have more education around I'm not going to disclose the specific disabilities because I didn't ask for consent course, but yeah. Um, yeah so that is another thing that the disability committee is in the process of doing um, and we also workshop ways we can make our rehearsals accessible to all learners. Um, I mentioned earlier, like we are, uh, we have no requirement for like how much musical experience you have. So we have people in our group that have never performed with a choir ever in their whole life and also don't want to perform. And like, we don't, we don't require people to perform. Um, so a few ways that I accommodate the people that have never been in a music setting with like all the jargon that comes with that um, is I teach by rote, which is by ear learning. So like I play the music and they repeat it back in, in short bursts. Um, okay. I teach with the sheet music also. So I, I teach the rote music and the sheet music at the same time. So for people who mm -hmm. don't like to learn by rote, have the sheet music in front of them. Um, and also the people that can't read music but need lyrics to be able to learn by rote. They have the lyrics mm -hmm. in front of them. Uh, and then we use other visuals to aid the learning process despite, despite our very low budget for these sorts of things. So uh, I've been using like large post-it notes to talk about like the musical staff and like nerdy stuff like that that I like to teach about. Um, since my degree is in music ed, I like really go ham on like 
making it kind of like a high school choral music setting, which I really did want to get circle back to um, because me and Master both shared experiences from high school being really positive choir experiences. Um, and I feel like a lot of people in Transpose have that experience and also maybe missed out on that experience and really wanted it. So I try to like bring that energy into the space and sort of like feel that part of the community and um, have fun with learning music instead of like making it super confusing and inaccessible. So I'll like, we'll talk about solfege, which is like, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, stuff. Or we'll like, um, I'll talk about like a rhythm system or, and I'll like have visuals for all this stuff. And we recently got a projector, um, which is very exciting because now I can make PowerPoints and it's really fun and I can make them really oh. colorful and gay. Um, so that's really great. Uh, and um, okay, I have a whole list that I'm, I'm reading from. Oh, we also provide art tracks for all of our music. Um, to aid in the learning process, especially for the songs that we're performing, but also for the songs that we don't perform, which we also have, um, just for people who are like, get easily overstimulated or overwhelmed during rehearsal and like, forget everything that we worked on and need a, like extra help at home. Um, we have like no attendance recordings oh. of, of all the Yeah. Parts. Luckily, a lot of music is on the internet already as part tracks. So we'll find those. Mm -hmm. But I do think it is more accessible and this is like my own personal philosophy and I think other people probably share this but I do think it's more accessible to have an actual voice singing the part track instead of just like a keyboard or a midi track which is usually oh, what's yeah. found on the internet um mm -hmm. so I try I, I have made a lot of my a lot of the part tracks for the group myself and also I kind of have a team of part track makers that I'm like hey we need part yeah. tracks by like this date do you Can have you the range do you have the rage to sing all the parts? Not usually. It depends on the piece. I cannot, I, I, my voice only very recently dropped to this range. Mm. So I, um, my instrument is not fully like able to navigate through its breaks yet. Cause I haven't spent enough time trying to do that. Um, but, uh, I theoretically, I would be able to do them all. I, cause I can sing like up soaring sopranos, but it's also just like too much work for me to do all the part tracks um mm -hmm. but yeah you know, I other stuff going on yeah <laughs> but I, I I aspire to do that and I do feel very proud of the fact that I have sung every um uh every part in the choir like throughout my life because I started as an alto and then I sang soprano and now and then I sang tenor and then I sang baritone slash bass and now I sing tenor again um but yeah awesome. and then another thing that is like related to that is that um you don't have to sing any part that is assigned to you like you get to pick the part that you want to sing and we'll have a conversation with our members when they first join about like their voice and we'll like do voicing that we now call voice check-ins um which is basically just like an opportunity for our members to sing um in front of somebody who can help them like learn more about their voice um and also gives a chance for the directors to like hear the individual voices in the group and like understand just like where people are at and what they need and also like talk about what range they feel the most comfortable singing in and like what they want their voice part to be called because some people don't like to be in a, 
a group of like altos or tenors or basses or anything like that. They just want to be like one, two, three, four, or another system of talking about it. So we try to be sensitive to that. Um, and I know that we're talking about disability justice, but I also think that trans, as I talked about earlier, I think like trans and disability justice pretty much go hand in hand um, yeah. with when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, we have no attendance policy and no audition. Um, the no attendance policy was like, there was some crunchy time, I'll call them, um, with our previous leadership. Um, but I'll get to that uh, at the later question. Um, but um, yeah, so um, there's, there's literally no expectation for you to come ever. Um, we're just happy for you to be there whenever you can. Um, and we found that like not requiring attendance means that there's actually better attendance. Maybe that's because of mm. the amount of PDAers we have in our group because it's a queer group and there's a lot of autistic people around. Um, uh -huh. So if we're not telling them they have to be there, they're more likely to come. Um, I don't like, <laughs> but I, I think it's just because people- PDA meaning pathological safe. demand avoidance chat. If yeah. you didn't realize that's what we're referencing. <laughs> yes. or, I or didn't <laughs> Or persistent uh, demand for autonomy is another way to describe it, which I prefer. Mm. Um, I like that better. Thank yeah. For that reframe, I like it. Yeah, it's so much better, right? Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, the Another way that we center disability justice, uh, which I think is really important and like helped us move in a much faster direction in terms of uh, like establishing all these things within our community is that the leadership are open and responsive to feedback. So if a disabled person comes to the to leadership and like, is like, actually I like, this wasn't accessible to me at all. Or if it's just like a member of our community who doesn't identify as disabled, um, we will respond to that immediately pretty much and like try to accommodate them as much as we can. Um, and that has like, helped create this culture of responsiveness and like centering disabled people's needs. Um, that is like, I think very unique to this community. Um, and along with that, there is like a conflict resolution skill um, within the community that is apparent. And I believe stems from like practice during the community conversations that we've had, because that has brought up, I'm gonna keep using the word because that's how my brain works. It's brought up a lot of country times, our community conversations, because people have mm. different opinions and like queer people are always gonna have different opinions from each other. And that's like a totally normal and like welcome oh, thing in our community. And like, we really embrace that diversity and like have worked on skills to like navigate through moments like that and make sure people's voices feel heard while like still prioritizing um, disability justice and various other justices. So um, yeah. Uh, people, this creates a, an environment where um, the disabled people in the room feel safe enough to be themselves loudly and stand up for themselves because the leadership have continuously shown up for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last thing I have is that we, we embrace and celebrate a variety of learning styles and experience levels. That's pretty much a TLDR of it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's amazing. And uh, if we want, uh, just to circle back to uh, the kind of like the conflict resolution um, we were talking about earlier, um, I'm sure this has come up, but uh, I mean, do you, do you face backlash, uh, ableist backlash from members within the group? So in my experience, mo there's not a lot of uh, backlash from members 
um, that aren't in the leadership. Maybe that's because we still haven't fully deconstructed the hierarchy that is inherent in all choral spaces of like the leadership and the membership, because um, we're still working on that. Or maybe it's just because of the environment we've created um, while I've been there. There's definitely like still like casual ableism a lot, but that is pretty hard to get rid of. Um, and we try our best to like stand up to it, but like, you know, people, people are people in this world. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, I will say, uh, as mentioned earlier, before our recent change in leadership, uh, most of the backlash came from our former director wanting us to unmask at outdoor performances and wanting us to control attendance and performance readiness. Um, which that actually led to the shift in leadership. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to disclose more information than that. Um, oh, that's but fine. what I will say is that both of these wants and needs in a, a choral director are not unique to this situation. It is very, very normal for a choral director to want that sort of control over the ensemble because there is this sort of feeling that it reflects on your ability to be a good director if the performance mm -hmm. isn't where you want it to be. Um, that's like a really prevalent phenomenon in choirs across the country um and I wish it was less common than it is but unfortunately I've seen it way too many times to not talk about it like this um and, and, I, and I don't think that's something that's unique to choirs I think anyone like a lot of people who are in leadership positions that you know manage a team of people you know how well the team does is a direct reflection of them as the leader right so yeah yeah um but we did like when we were able to overcome that and like say like oh actually like we don't need to require attendance at all um we are acknowledging the reality that you actually you can't control people and they don't want to be <laughs> controlled so even if you try to control them like you're not going to succeed in that um and so we've we've had a lot more like love and success without having any any attendance policy um and it works really really well um and what, what other kinds of performing arts do you do? Uh, so I do circus. Um, the main things in circus that I do, I, I enjoy the most um, is doing silks, which are the fabric from the sky. It's oh, an aerial okay. apparatus, so I'm climbing it. Um, and then I also um, do lira, which is the hoop that okay. hangs from the sky. Um, I did dance for... A long, long time, and then I started experience, experiencing chronic pain because I have EDS and I'm hypermobile, and that was no longer accessible to my body. And luckily, circus keeps me strong enough to make my pain a little bit more manageable and is mm -hmm. a little bit less impactful on my joints for it to be accessible to me currently. Um, and I love it so much, and it's really fun, and the people I get to do circus with uh are all in my polycule which is great <laughs> that's so amazing <laughs> um yeah it's pretty cool super fun I might as well mention also that I have a degree in playing piano uh and not that's just cool. singing so that is actually my main thing is like uh so we will already, yeah. shortly I will I will just shortly add that yeah. um circus circus once saved my life Mm. Um, okay now we have to okay now you have to tell us the story <laughs> yes 
Well, I don't know how often aerial silks are going to come up on this podcast. So I just want to yes, take the opportunity. Yes. Um, so I was, I was what I, I was in, what I would call my Saturn return. I was around the age of 27. Everything was horrible. Um, if I were to pick a tarot card to represent the entire situation of my life, I would say the tower, just everything was falling apart. I, uh, had become homeless in a privileged way where I was like living in someone's basement and not paying rent and I had lost my mm -hmm. job but it wasn't like we had a written agreement and I actually was asked to leave that house within three months of moving in because the, the person needed somewhere for her son his wife and their newborn baby to live which like understandable but also you know housing insecurity is not fun um as 27 I was sort of homeless couch surfing um I was I had, I had, was on medical leave from my job because I got injured at work. And so it was a really challenging time. I think um, both of my girlfriends and I had broken up. So I had like a big polycule explosion. Everything was terrible. It just everything, romance, work, housing, everything was terrible. The one good thing was never Katie was alive and well and with me. That's the only good thing that was happening that month. It was so bad. And it was December and it was dark and rainy and I had no idea how I was going to pull out of all of that cluster of shenanigans that were negative. Um, and I don't, I honestly don't remember how the invitation came to me. I feel like it must've been a friend or a friend of a friend, but I, I was invited to come to the rehearsals for this circus show that was going to be happening for three weeks, a three week long run in December in Seattle in like a big, like a professional circus, like on fifth Avenue, like at the big performing arts center, people pay good money to go see this performance, very fancy, whatever. Um, but somehow I ended up like in the green room two weeks before the show went live and they said that they needed someone to run lights for the show. And they were like, well, we can't pay you, but like, if you want to be around and included, like you could run lights for us. And so for no money, I was in the circus for, you know, four or five weeks running lights. And that meant I had somewhere I had to be every day. It gave my entire week and time of that, that moment in my life, a lot of structure. Um, the show was called Love and Gravity. So if you go look through news things, you could find what year that was and what year everything was terrible. But um it was a stunning show about love and love lost and human resilience and all oh. told through um, aerial silks and other circus arts. I think there was the big sear wheel that you do yes. on foot, but some of the, the most stunning pieces of the show were all aerial based. Um, and honestly, being included in that community and having something to wake up and go do like kept me from the the darker thoughts and the you know i'm gonna leave it there because we haven't done enough content warnings for the subject matter but um it it helped me be in the right mindset to persevere i will put it that way mm -hmm. um so i really do feel like the ways that especially queer community especially performing arts communities can just really love people up and understand that it is so often that trans and queer people are, are going through stuff like that, right? The tower card, just your whole life falls apart and you may or may not have access to your ancestral wealth or like your friend groups or whatever. Um, 
because so often queer people are traumatized because we're queer and therefore different. And so then we can do lateral violence with all that trauma and everything explodes and it is terrible. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, so yes, the being included in just like, it was just like a cue would happen and I would push a button. Like it was the same button every time, but it didn't matter. Like, <laughs> you know, I think maybe I was doing, maybe I was doing music instead of lights and it was just like a, like a iTunes playlist or something, but like um, maybe the other person was doing lights and that was more complicated, but um, yeah, I just being involved in that just totally saved my life. So 10 out of 10 would recommend anyone who's interested in circus get involved because it's very cool. Thanks. Yeah. Circus is cool. Oh, that's such a great story. For yeah. listening. Yeah. <laughs> I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, so oh yeah. So I wanted to circle back arts. to uh yeah, I wanted to circle back to uh something something like less wholesome, but uh it's uh, we were kind of like talking about this during the break, but uh just want to kind of get your thoughts on why you think our culture is just so reticent to, you know, wear masks. Like, why is this such a big problem for people? Yeah. Um, okay. So this could, I, this is going to have a long answer, um, but there is a short answer, but I'm going to do the long answer first. Sure. Um, so there's like the neurotypical answer, which is, you know, we see emotions on people's faces and covering that is perceived as alienating um, to people maybe not me but other people um so that is that and in a performance context like people get upset when they can't see like emotions being portrayed on stage um and uh in the same realm i'm gonna okay i know this is like a cultural question which i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to the culture but i'm also gonna focus a little bit on like coral spaces in general because i did experience like coral spaces unmasking sooner than other spaces personally and so there's also the physical limitation of diction being um worse which is to say that you have to try harder to have better diction so that you can be understood by the audience um and by diction, I mean like your consonants, like the loudness of your consonants, um, so and the way that that comes across in choral mm-hmm. music. Be breathing has the feeling of restriction, but that's not true. Um, there are many studies that show that there's no significant change in O2 levels. Um, but because of that physical sensation with singing, people tend to overcompensate or not compensate enough, and people would rather not wear a mask than um, learn to sing with a mask. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole other can of worms you can open about jaw issues, but I'm not going to go into that, but my jaw did pop out of place this weekend, which was not very fun. Um, but I do also Mm. have an underlying, um, genetic, uh, disorder. So that's probably what it was. Um, (laughs) there is this mindset of majority rules in our like society that leaves marginalized people falling through the cracks and, um, deprioritized um and we see that in in more than just masking in our culture um uh the the there's this like understanding of the scientific standard of safe enough um is statistics based and doesn't include outliers which are people who are immunocompromised and is actually a very significant number of people 
um, and um, it doesn't also it also doesn't factor in what we were talking about earlier, which are like the long term impacts of more people getting long COVID and impacts of mm-hmm. retracting COVID over and over again. And like there's more and more studies coming about like showing the similarities of like how HIV and COVID similarly attack your system and like in, mm. in, in uh, get into all your different systems of being without you knowing and it's always there mm. and it could be worse at any second. Um, so like that, that just kind of gets brushed under the rug because of that, like safe enough vibe that people function at. Um, there's a want to return to normalcy, which is related to like group denial that we are in pandemic conditions and Mm -hmm. wearing a mask is actively interrupting that thought pattern or coping process. And, um, like seeing somebody wear a mask actually interrupts that. So like what we were talking about earlier with like when there's that exchange of like, oh, do you want me to wear a mask? It's like that person is confronting the fact that they themselves are not wearing a mask, even though we are in fact still in pandemic conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. And like that can be uncomfortable for a lot of folks. So they would rather just be in spaces where people are not masking and not have to think about it. And that is like a real coping mechanism that people are using. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh. Okay, this is from like an organizational standpoint, like if you're within an organ or organization, um, like what, what is the responsibility of an organization protected membership? And that becomes a, a liability problem. And when the government mandates got like gotten rid of, um, it got put back onto an individual basis because, um, you know, organizations really didn't want to have anything to do with that liability problem of like, something happening and then being responsible. So they just put all the impact on the individual. And I experienced that shift when I was a full-time student and it sucked because all of my peers immediately stopped masking. And I was also student teaching at the time. So I was getting really Mm -hmm. exposed uh, like at elementary schools who are, you know, also this impacts our children a lot. And, you know, we're seeing a, a huge pediatric health crisis right now, but people would rather just, you know, it's really hard to get kids to wear masks. So people would rather just not try to get their kid to wear a mask. Um, uh, but yeah, so the healthcare industry determining it's safe enough led to becoming individual responsibility, which paved the way for everyone's ableism to kind of shine pretty brightly, which is what I experienced in, in my years in college. Um, and this is, uh, again, related to everything I said, but like people are tired of feeling endangered and especially in the world that we live in right now, like, People are just tired of feeling like the world's falling apart and they'd like to do anything to not feel those feelings. Um, and the, priv- the privilege of getting to forget that we're in a pandemic is not masking. Um, and the last thing I have written is that people don't like being told what to do. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I like, so on some levels I get it. Um, like I get like not being, not not wanting to be told what to do. I also like get the whole like, pandemic fatigue thing but at the same time I recognize that it's that is a very privileged position where I can I can say that because like we were talking about this in the break before where it's like um I'm not really like I live by myself I don't interact with other people in real life so it's just like I'm only risking my own health um so and that is very privileged on my part where I can I can make that choice for myself but like 
as a society, we're leaving some people behind. We are leaving the people who are immunocompromised. We're leaving the, behind the disabled, the, the vulnerable. So like, yeah, the government can say like, oh yeah, we don't need to wear masks anymore. And then everyone stops wearing masks. And then it's just like, is that really the best choice? Or are we just kind of caving into this like desire to, to as you said, return to normalcy? Yeah. And I mean, the the government saying all of that in, in my perspective as a human is like totally related to capitalism. And I'm assuming the people that were like down with capitalism in the beginning at the chat are like with <laughs> me on that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the government was in a recession and was like, hey, we got to get back to normalcy. And the way that we can do that is by telling you all that you're actually safe when you're not. Um, mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, so like really good, I'm an economist, really so point. we we like to talk about uh, perverse incentives. So that that is the case of of a perverse incentive where you're sacrificing the public health, you're sac sacrificing public good for the sake of you know. I'm going to use the term economy, but like you know, I could speak in more precise terms, but uh, if I just say economy, everyone will kind of understand what I'm talking about. But <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's and yeah, like I was saying before, like you know, that works for a lot of people, but a lot of people that super doesn't work for and we're leaving those people behind yeah me i'm those people i'm who's getting yes. left behind <laughs> yeah, yeah. so like me. you know when i go visit master master asks me to wear a mask for a week i will absolutely do that and if you have disabled people in your life if you have immediate compromised people in your life and you're going to be spending you're going to be in close proximity with them just wear a mask it's it's not that hard just do it yeah i will say like also you know immunocompromised people exist in in like we want to exist everywhere mm -hmm. um yeah like that's true you know the the grocery store the bars you know mm -hmm. i wish i could go to a restaurant i had to restrain myself from cursing just then um <laughs> like i miss it a lot and there's a really good ethiopian restaurant in Ithaca that i haven't been able to eat because they only have one chef and they no longer do pickup orders um, oh no! And I found that out the really sad way last night. Um, oh, no. But what yeah. if you like wore a mask, you ordered it, and you brought your own takeout container, and you just reboxed no, it, and then pay and left? We literally, we literally <laughs> were serious? gonna do that, but then we didn't have spoons to do that because I had just performed in a concert. But yeah, oh, I, I plan on doing that because I want them to. So bad. Um, I have. Um, deep and passionate feelings about masking and i'm trying to not make this entire podcast about that one topic so i think it's super um, fine i think it's important yeah it's it's important and i'm also like in therapy about my anxiety around covid so i need to not dwell yeah. there too much because i'll just yeah like, and it, i did want to respond to oh, something that gothic end. pluto said in the chat uh <laughs> she uh, they said that um they wish the burden of asking people to wear a mask wasn't put on us it's so emotionally exhausting and yeah that's that's one of the reasons I offer to wear a mask. It's like, so they mm -hmm. like, so the, the person who's impacted by it, it doesn't have that burden of asking. It's like, I will offer, it's like, do you want me to wear a mask? I'm happy to wear a mask. Like, it's not like, yeah. it's not in a position. Like, I'm happy to do it for you. Yeah, I, I am curious. Sona, have you heard of or seen anything about um, like masks that are specifically made for singing in? Yes. I heard okay. That from CB, yeah. but then I was like, I don't know how to look this up. I don't know where to find this. I would like to yeah. know more. <laughs> I I need to look at. So, 
okay, so there are singers, Matt, and, you know, they were required for me to buy one for my college degree. I did not buy one. Um, I did have, like, something to put on my face, which ended up being a little bit worse. So here's what I'm going to say. Singers masks, from my understanding of them, are not a medical grade at all and are fabric um, from what I can perceive. I have not done research on that. So like there, you know, maybe it's like a special kind of fabric that is like a 95 rated. I don't know. But um, to my understanding, it's just fabric and it doesn't have a very good seal. There, like I sing in an Aura 3M mask. Um, that works pretty well for me personally. Um I think, you know, flow masks probably work pretty well to sing in because there's no back pressure against you. Um, but it depends on like how good the seal is on your particular face and like what your comfort levels are with that seal, like being a little bit squiggly if you're dropping your jaw to an awe vowel. Um, you know, everyone in Transpose uses a different kind of mask, um, but most people don't wear a singer's mask. Some people are most comfortable in surgical masks. Um, and some people are most comfortable in like the triangular KN95s. Um, they have like little inserts that you can put in your mask. That's like a little like, I wish I had one so I could show you, but it's at my apartment that I'm not currently in. But um, it's like a little like scaffold thing that like holds the mask far away from your mouth. So it's not like sucking in when you're breathing. Um, but I found that I don't have that issue with Aura 3Ms because they're pretty like secure and structured um i'm trying to find i think i might have one that i can show you but i don't know that would be pretty cool i don't oh, i do okay mm. this is the mask that i sing in um it's like you can get these like from construction websites for cheap but they don't have the nice like white elastic they have like rubber blue rubber on the side which can be sensory bad for some folks but um including myself uh, but yeah, this like is pretty hard. So if you're breathing in, it doesn't like go against your face. So I like to use these. There's also like another kind of these that are like more triangular, like this way and are like that. And they're like a little bit softer and those seem really nice. And I've been meaning to try them out. Um, and they're the same like level as this one. Um, but yeah, th so, uh, that, that is my knowledge of singing math. Master, you're muted. Sorry. Um, have you heard We're of We're professional N100s? podcasters. <laughs> no. Um, so so the aura maybe costs like three dollars a mask. N one hundreds cost fourteen to seventeen dollars per mask. So it's like in my opinion, it's like a special occasion only mask. It's not a daily driver. Um, but I I wore an N one hundred to like a massive concert like a pop star concert tens of thousands of people in a stadium i was very anxious to be around that many other humans mm. um i did not take my mask off even to drink water like that stayed glued to my face the whole time um and i did not get sick and there were so many people there like it was basically a super spreader event um and the mask worked so um you know, I, I only make a decision like that when I know I have seven to 10 days or more where I'm not going to see anyone afterwards. And so then I'm taking the risk, but I'm not passing that risk on to other people. Yeah. Um, and when I did it, I had a ton of shame. I was like, oh no, my friends are going to be disappointed in me. Um, mm -hmm. But like, you know, part of, part of what I'm having to learn is like how, 
how can I like keep myself safe um, and still engage in the social activities in life? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means more complex negotiations. Like I actually had a friend come over and we played card games together. Both of us mask out in the world, vast majority of the time, like, you know, my friend was saying, even when I have my kid at a playground outside, we both wear masks because of how many people are around. And I'm a very similar level of like, you know, if my if I'm outside and a neighbor starts to walk up to me, I will go in my car and put a mask on before the neighbor gets proximity to me because I know they're not going to stay six feet away. They're just going to talk at me like like mm -hmm. regular, quote unquote. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to I got to put something on. Um, I think I went for a walk without a mask in my pocket once in the last year. And I realized it when I got home and I was like, oh no, <laughs> like, <I'm so> worried. <laughs> but like, I didn't run into anyone on the walk, so I didn't need it, but it was just like, what if it happens? I kind of live in a rural area anyways. Um, and so like the friend came over and we both tested beforehand and our partners and our other house people did everyone tested negative. And so then we were able to like play cards and not be too worried about it. Um, you know, but that, that requires a lifestyle of masking all the time and being willing to test ahead of time and you know it wasn't a party of eight right it was just me and one other person and we had our little dinner snacks and it was fun I haven't had a friend over to like play a game at my house in a long time because of mm. COVID so anyway there are ways to approach that um but yeah the, yeah. the N100 N100 is a thing you can google it everybody um and if my my friends who are even more advanced with the COVID research than I am Remind me that the mask seal is more important than the amount of particulates that it can weed out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, only N100 is only a great idea if you can make sure that it's going to have a good mask seal. Mask. Yeah. Um, I was going <laughs> to say something. Oh, my, my, um, me and my polycule had a, a gathering recently and we sent the information about it like a month in advance where we were like, please test two days beforehand and day of and um mm -hmm. that was great and we were able to have like an almost party and we don't like parties so it wasn't actually a party but it was like a gathering of people to celebrate a birthday and it was like, and that was like the first time in a long time that I've experienced a gathering like that um mm. that was pretty cool yeah. and it was like great to have everybody like respect the boundaries that we set yeah, and that's that's really what it comes down to is just respecting other each other's boundaries. Uh, I mean, not just for masking, but for you know all our boundaries. I think it's it's really important to set healthy boundaries with the people in your life. And um, when people don't respect your boundaries, it's 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 a good sign that like you should probably not hang out with that person. <laughs> uh, but yeah, circling back to the whole like high school choral experience. Uh, what suggestions for accessibility might you have for uh, kindergarten and grade 12 school choir directors or just anything else in general about high school choirs that you want to say? I think, mm, I do think a lot of high school choral spaces are more accessible than a standard like public school classroom um, just by the way that they typically are run because you're working from a bottom-up perspective usually already unless you have a really good middle school like music and chorals program um so but and like you most teachers that I've met and worked with are using stuff like visual aids and like know all that stuff and there's like lots of resources for teachers that are explaining all of that 
Um, I'll talk, I can talk about transness though. Um, because, uh, choir spaces inevitably have trans people in them in high schools, um, like that, mm -hmm. like as any other classroom, but there is like clearly a surplus of trans students in the music wing at all times. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the first thing is like, let's stop gendering choruses. A lot of people are saying this, but I'll echo them. Uh, like that is so not necessary. And it's really, really easy to talk about the voice in a gender non-conforming way or like a, like just not, it doesn't need to be related to gender. It can be, and that's an awesome thing, but like in a choral space, you don't need to be doing that because it doesn't make everybody feel good in the room. Um, and just let the students sing the part they want to sing. They're in high school. It's not that deep. Uh, a lot of people are going to disagree with that. <laughs> um, a lot. But you can make the, the balance work. And you don't have to make a trans person sing a voice part that they don't want to be singing. And it's not going to make your choir sound bad. Also, trans masked voices can sing on T. It's not different from puberty that you learned about in college uh, for TV voices in general. It's like pretty much the same sort of thing when you're taking them through it. So a lot of a lot of people in Transpose have told me like they have had people tell them that they would not be able to sing afterwards or pursue a, a career in music, um, which is just really not true. And there's a lot of misinformation mm -hmm. about that spread around the voice industry and there's a lot of people that are like talking about it and given the real information about it but yeah that's where a lot of resonance in the chat with please stop gendering choir spaces yes yeah it's just so unnecessary uh which is why we changed our name from it's a gay month chorus to transpose that's so good <laughs> <laughs> As a, oh boy, as a mathematician, transpose is a very different meaning to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's kind of why we, we picked it because it was like so fun and like could be a pun in so many different contexts and mm -hmm. we loved that and we felt like that was a very queer thing. No, I, I, I love the name. It's, it's great. <laughs> I want to throw in one more question that we didn't write down for you ahead of time. Um, it's based on what you mentioned about your PhD possible topic. Um, is there is there anything you want to share or info dump about um, what it's like being uh, trans and on HRT and how your voices do or don't change depending on if you're on estrogen or testosterone? And like, I know for me, I'm on testosterone and my, I need voice lessons. I don't know how to sing anymore. Yeah. And I yeah. would like to. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm on estrogen and uh, oh boy, let me, for, for those of you that don't know, doesn't change your voice so <laughs> i also needed i also needed uh speech therapy so <laughs> well and i'm uh, and i mean like i want singing lessons yes yeah yes and i know for you so, it's more speech therapy so it's mm -hmm. yeah i yeah. i will happily input up about this so mm -hmm. so i'm gonna focus on trans mass voices because that's where my interest is specifically because the, the instrument itself is physically changing and uh, you have to navigate that um and it's actually like i've talked to a lot of other trans mass folks about this like um it's 
there's like a grieving process that you go through when you're a singer and your voice is changing because um Mm -hmm. for me personally and the people I've talked to like I didn't experience dysphoria from singing I experienced dysphoria from my speaking voice um and like it was like that was like the main reason I went on HRT was because of my speaking voice and um that trade-off was like a decision I had to make especially being somebody who was studying voice uh and it was really scary and you mourn your old voice because you know the instrument and you know what to expect and you know how to navigate it and you feel like you finally got good at it singing is really hard it takes a long time to feel like you sound good unless you're like naturally talented like some people are but um not me and um (laughs) it's just an instrument you have to learn and the physical sensations change drastically when you mm. are on T typically. And like for me, um, my voice dropped like really, really fast. And I wasn't mm. expecting that because I purposefully was on low dose testosterone to like prevent that since I knew I was mm. like getting a, like a degree with a secondary major in singing. Um, and so I was trying to like make the transition as slow as possible, but that didn't end up happening. And um, it was really overwhelming to learn a new instrument. And I will say like, I think it would be really cool if there are resources for like trans mass folk that are just free resources that are like singing lessons for people that want to get to know their voice again. The other thing that I have sort of found in discussing these sort of things is that and this is not research back yet, <laughs> um, but like the voice actually, it's not a totally different instrument when it changes. It like when you're, especially if you're transitioning as somebody who still, who already feels grounded in their vocal mechanism, like you know how the vocal mechanism works, you know how to use your breath and it's not, you're not entering the instrument as totally new. However, like the sensations are different, but once you learn them, it actually will start to feel very similar to how it felt pre-transition. Um, uh, and the thing that I've been noticing is that the places that I feel most comfortable in my range right now, which really don't sit in a comfortable place with between baritone and tenor, um, like I can sing tenor notes, but uh, it's really hard and I have to be in my falsetto a lot and if I sing baritone, I feel really tired really quickly and can no longer sing the low notes after like a specific amount of time in rehearsal. And I'm in like two hour long rehearsals. So um, tenor is the the art of choice right now. But the range that I feel most comfortable in is the range that I actually was most comfortable in pre-transition, just an octave lower. And I think that is something that resonates with a lot of other trans mass folk that I've talked to about this phenomenon um, is like, there are our voices don't really fit into like this the typical outlines that choral music is written in um and that makes it really challenging and this kind of relates to Phoebe's work with um like changing lines in choral music to be more accessible to trans folk and like being that in that like sweet Tosatora spot that everybody can sing in comfortably um mm-hmm. and uh so I just think that that's really interesting and I'm really interested in like the physical, like actually researching like the physical changes that are happening and how those are different from like uh, a TB voice that transitions like in first puberty, like in middle school um, and like what the differences are and like 
if there are true differences and like I think also you know it's pretty clear that um there's like a trans mask voiced amber like the way that it sounds is very different than what other like tv voices sound like um because of like it's almost like a brassiness or like a brightness and maybe it's because we are not trying to talk like the set men um <laughs> like you yeah. know i i, I wonder if it's inflection to- from decades of like girl mode quote unquote it's definitely mm-hmm. inflection but also like it is a it is a specific brightness and position of the larynx that affects how we mm. sing, um, and I've noticed this a lot in like other people that I feel like my voice also sounds like, um, and I think that is a big reason why there is this belief that you can't sing after transitioning on T because people just haven't heard this amber of voice like all like it's a very well understood thing in like voice dead years that that thing <laughs> that was a very funny way to say that um that like baritone is a different timbre from a tenor and like there are different colors of baritone there are different colors of tenor you know like there's like the coloratura soprano there's the lyrical soprano there's the you know uh dramatic soprano those are all color descriptors of like what the voice sounds like and the trans mask voice is like a new color that people haven't heard before and so they think that mm. it's smooth as dancing which is not true um so yeah i'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> but i'll i'll let you know when i publish my dissertation and i'll, I'll mm-hmm. make sure you have access to it yes if there's an audiobook version i want, want that version because oh for sure i also words is hard read. for my brain <laughs> <laughs> i can write I can edit my writing sometimes, but no, I'm it? probably no, never met. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably gonna have to dictate my whole dissertation because I can't write, so that'll be a whole that's, thing for me to I figure out. Yeah. Oh man, that's a whole other topic: accessibility and like PhD presentations. Yeah, it would and be like so meta to do that... a PhD dissertation on PS- <laughs> PhD dissertation <Whoa>. presentations. <laughs> Also, it's like how many people getting PhDs are autistic? Because probably a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, how yeah. many people are, like are going to be like, yes, I'm going to study this super hyper specific thing for several years and not get paid yeah. very much money? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Yep. laughs> yes. I mean, that's like, I intentionally did not do a PhD because I was like, no, I don't want to be in school until I'm 40. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Oh man. Oh, I'm having so much fun. And I know that our producer needs to leave soon. Um, so is there anything that we missed, Sona, about disability justice and choir groups that you want to make sure that you have a chance to say? I want to say that community choirs are about experiencing joy that everyone deserves to feel. And in order to achieve that, the experience of the music needs to reach the members by providing accommodations for those who need them. That's it. Uh, well, this next question is my favorite question, uh, just because in the current political climate, often our stories are framed in, in terms of tragedy and loss and sadness, but I think it's far more important to share our joy. Can you share an experience with us uh, that you've had with gender euphoria? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, it was actually, okay. I, there's a lot of things I could share, but I'm going to share this one because I think it's fun. But um you, Miranda, you called me sir earlier, and I do not get sir very often, and that was 
an A plus experience. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. It was like it was like very much at the beginning of the call, but yeah, it was that okay. was an, a great moment for me. I think I might have no. done it by accident. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it was like it was like kind of like a mumbled one, and I was like, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and this is like you know, this is a mea culpa, but like, I, I very much struggle with neo pronouns. So like I I like if I did it it was completely unconscious like I was not I no, was not thinking no, about it no no I meant sir it's sir ma'am oh sir ma sir yeah I, I thought like you meant Mr. sir because yeah okay so I, I'm sorry I thought you meant you said sir as like one of your like one of your pronouns I also don't remember I remember calling you sir. <laughs> Someone <laughs> stirred me today and I was like who are you talking to. <laughs> Uh, like, I, okay. Binary. It's like I guess, I'm not I guess like flavored in my head. I've just, just like just gone into like podcaster okay. autopilot mode, and like I like there's there's there are no hands on the steering wheel right now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my answer. Oh well, I'm happy that I was unwittingly a part of your gender euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> so lovely. All right, final final question for today. What would you like to make sure that folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary trans and or gender diverse issues? Um, my perspective is that there are no rules and I find rules overwhelming and restrictive. And I, I think, yes, there is a place in this time for rules, but I don't think when it, when it comes to gender, like we don't, we don't need rules for that. Mm. <laughs> Put them away. That's my perspective. This is gender country. There are no rules. <laughs> yeah, so anarchy for the win. Nice. Okay. Well, lovely. Um, folks, um, Sona is a trans mask, non-binary ADHD choir director committed to creating safe spaces for queer disabled folks to enjoy music making. Transpose Ithaca Queer Singers Alliance is on Instagram at Transpose Ithaca. I actually went and followed their Instagram while the show was live because I was like, ooh, I want to see more later. And there's really cute pictures of pe happy people singing um, and also probably queer art because your posters are very artistic and I bet queers made them. Yes. <laughs> Big nods. Queers did make them. So go, go check out the Instagram. Um, and you also, Sona, you have your own Instagram. I'm seeing Sona my, Minas minus. M yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, it's the beginning of my last name, which is Minasian. But yeah, so you, you got it. Wonderful. Um, well, here is this week's part. Here is this week's clatter query that you, our audience, can answer on our social media platforms. What are your communities doing to keep disabled and immunocompromised folks safe in the pandemic? Hooray. Um, so yeah, tune in next week. So actually for the entire month of February, we're, uh, we're celebrating Black History Month by having a bunch of Black guests on the show. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, yes, when white people want to book with us this time of year, we say you get to wait until April when our next opening is. <laughs> Um, community announcements. Um, I I will vaguely say that I am very excited and want to welcome our ten to twelve new Clatter contributors um, over the holiday. 
our internal staff composition has increased about 50%. There's a lot of training going on right now with all of our lovely new um, contributors. Um, I also will say that folks can look forward to not one, not two, but three massive mutual aid events being put on by Gender Federation this year. Um, The dates are going to be on this cool calendar in front of me. Um, So March 28th through 31st, um, July 11th through 14th, and October 3rd through 6th. And we'll also have a special Trans Day Remembrance stream on um, November 20th. So if you're listening to this podcast at any point during 2024 and you hear these dates, you're like, oh, that's coming up soon. Um, we always need help moderating those events, keeping track of donations, and we do need Twitch streamers um, also for those events. So um, if you're interested in getting involved and participating in any of our mutual aid activities, um, we work together for uh, trans, queer, and disabled people to um, get their needs met. We often will do um, medical mutual aid for folks that need um, trans-affirming surgeries, but we have also been known to do some stuff around support with housing um, and other similar crises that can pop up for um, folks. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to participate in these events, it's a great way to get to know your fellow streamers that care about intersectional justice, which is what we've been talking about all day. Um, We would love to have you join us. Um, Reach out to the Gender Master team. Um, you can either join the Discord server and talk about it on your welcoming ticket or um, the Gender Master Discord server, or you can um, show up at a Twitch stream and say, hey, or you could email or DM me, but the the more prolific this stuff gets, the less available I will be by direct message. And you should probably contact us via um, our group our group avenues of communication so that it doesn't depend on me getting back to you. Um, but yes, it's it's very we have a very exciting year planned, and um, I hear rumors that friends want to throw a mutual aid event for me, maybe in July, um, which I have feelings about. Uh, mostly gratitude, but also the fear, <laughs> the fear of the spotlight. It's different when you're the one receiving the money. I don't know. Um, yes, but it's it is on behalf of of Jenner Master. So. Um, yeah, so we just we have a lot of big events coming up as a community, and um, we always need support and help from our community, um, not only financial but also like personal, like time, energy, uh, participation. You don't have to have money to make a difference. Um, there's a lot of ways that we work together. I guess I could also report that we raised over twelve thousand dollars for Doctor C during our last mutual aid event in December, um, and last May, Kames Mutual Aid. I think raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $17,000. So these are not small events. These are potent um, happenings that are, mm-hmm. it's like riding lightning. I don't know how it happens. It's a mystery. And then magic happens and I'm just humbled every time. So um, join us for the mystery. It's cool. <laughs> it's a fun adventure. Um, yeah. Do you have any other community updates, Miranda, that you want to share? Um, yeah, I got a couple things going on 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 my end. So uh, my super lesbian animal RPG series on my YouTube channel is back. Uh, I had to Yay. take a little a brief break on that because I ran out of footage. But I, I did a one night only stream last week where I finished the game. 
and I cried on stream because that's how wholesome this game is. It's oh my god, I love it. So like I, I was like openly crying. I was like, oh my god, this is so sweet. <laughs> and uh, I'm also I'm done writing the script for my next video essay. Uh, it's going to be about the Dune films. It's going to be about uh, current political events. Uh, it's going to be about anti-Arab and uh, racism and Islamophobia and stuff like that. So uh, some pretty heavy topics. Uh, I'm going to be uh, probably doing a script script revision some point this week and uh either this weekend or next weekend i'm gonna shoot it and then um spend the rest of the month editing and i'm aiming for a early march release on that so stay tuned if you're not subscribed to my youtube channel you can go find that it's youtube.com forward slash at nas attack n-a-s-s-a-t-t-a-c-k 10 out of 10 would recommend Yes. Um, we also have a gender master YouTube where this podcast is published in addition to listening auditory. I mean, you might be watching platforms. this episode. You might be watching this episode on there right now. Well, yes. <laughs> and if you didn't know there was a video component, there is. Yes. If you want to see our goofy faces <laughs> and our lovely guests emoting passionately about their special interests. Um, so Jennifer would like to thank all of our supporters on Patreon, starting with Miranda Katita, my co-host. Thanks for being a Patreon supporter. Um, Holly Blash, Winter Vespers, Loch Ness Gamer, Justin Baker Rojas, Yaisio, Ray of Swords, Mirami, The Hessian, and Trans Capybara. Jennifer would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. If you'd like to catch us live, join us on Mondays on twitch.tv forward slash Jenner Meowster. Show notes will appear in the edited versions of the show on Fridays on both YouTube and podcasting platforms. If you have a question you'd like the host to answer or are gender diverse and would like to request an interview, please send an email to genderfulpodcast at gmail.com or sign up via the website at genderfulpodcast.com. As a gender diverse community, the Clouder wants to assure our listeners that we are prepared to moderate our spaces. We will get positive and negative feedback on these shows and topics. And we have a moderation team on our channels, socials, and Discord server ready to deal with this. Please join our Discord server at discord.gg forward slash meowster to meet the community and get a regular digest of solidarity resources. You can also support us with subscriptions on Patreon, following and reviewing us on your favorite podcasting platform, or engaging with our posts and content on social media at genderfulpod and at gendermeowster. You can take a few minutes to rate the show. We will post any five-star reviews on our socials, so get creative. Mention a special interest of your own, a project you're working on, or even say hi to your comfort person in your review. What power? This show is made possible by volunteers, tips, and subscriptions. Shout out to the folks helping us coordinate guests, edit the podcast, moderate the live chat, and post on our socials. Here's our artist credit. Jennerful is hosted by Miranda Katita and Jenner Meowster. Jennerful's pre-show is wrangled by Juice Tex. Jennerful's live stream is produced by Mirami. Jennerful is edited and mixed by Trans Griffin and Free Range Megs. Jennerful's promos and thumbnail graphic are designed by Trans Griffin. Jennerful's social media is managed by Kamesy. Jennerful's theme song is called Hope by Free Range Megs, also known as Soma. The current Gender Master logo was designed by Siptopia. Jennerful is the intellectual property of Gender Master, all rights reserved. Trans, Trans rights, rights are human rights. rights. That's right. right.